title this portion of scripture, which comes from Colossians, with a single word, focus. I think you'll, you'll see that we'll play that theme as we uh, continue to study that passage today. For a longer title was uh, Gaining a Proper Perspective on Living in Christ. By way of review, this point in Colossians, we've just had two chapters that have declared the exhilarating, glorious truth describing Christ, our salvation, and our future. We found that Christ was the preeminent one, the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells. And though we were initially alienated and hostile to God, Christ accomplished our reconciliation so that he can present us holy and blameless. But before Paul moves into a discussion in the next two chapters, the nitty gritty of living as a follower of Christ, he wants to sign and set the stage for us to help us gain perspective so that we properly apprehend what's the content of those chapters that will follow. I was thinking, trying to find an analogy that might be uh, descriptive of what this passage is about, and I came up with one I th- which I think applies, which is uh, comparing it to driving a car on a, uh, a trip somewhere, but you're at night and the road is drenched with uh, rain, and so your headlights don't reflect well, so it's hard to see the road. We may have a great vehicle for the trip, but our vision is hindered by the glare of headlights as they come by us, by the rain on the, on the uh, road itself, by the rain, the obscuring rain on our windshield, by our limited familiarity maybe with the road and the and difficulty in seeing the signs, and by our eagerness to reach our intended destination. And as well as that, we're tired and we're tense from driving in this difficult situation. What we really need is clarity, we need uh, clear guidance, we need strength, and we need refreshment in our spirit so we can complete the trip safely. Just so I think Paul is offering us that kind of clarity and guidance so that we can negotiate the difficulties of this trip of life in Christ and reach its glorious conclusion. But before we get into the uh, specific passage itself, I wanted to step back and see exactly how Paul got here. What was his history in reaching this point? Let's see if I can get a map up there. Well, maybe not. Okay. Good, I got a copy of it so I don't have to turn around and look at the map. (laughs) So, uh, what's the background? Uh, In this map, just to orient yourself, this is what we call Turkey today, but it was not called that in the Roman times. It was a collection of different uh, provinces. Some of the bigger names I've put there, Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, Pamphylia, Cilicia, and Cappadocia. And off in that gray area to the, uh, the bottom right corner, that's the area where Syria is, and then on the coast is what we call Lebanon. Back in those days, it was more like Tyre and Sidon. And uh, the province of Cilicia, Paul says that he came from that province when he was giving his defense, I think, before 
the uh, governors in, in Judea. So that's where he came from. He was saved in Damascus, which is in that gray area off to the bottom right corner. And after a time, he went back. I don't know if you can see it, but it's a little town of Antioch. They call it Syrian Antioch because there's more than one Antioch, just like there's more than one Portland and there's more than one uh, <laughs> various other towns in the United States, Newport, for instance. So uh, that was called uh, Syrian Antioch. So after he got saved, that's uh, where he ended up with Barnabas. And they were elders in the church there. And at some point, the Holy Spirit informed the church that they needed to send Paul on a missionary journey. This church, by the way, was uh, founded by people who were uh, fleeing persecution in Jerusalem. So they came up there, people like you, people like me, they shared the gospel, the good news that they heard, and God brought many to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles. And so it was kind of a strange situation. The Jews weren't used to incorporating Gentiles into their fellowship. This was kind of weird. And they didn't know exactly how to do with it. They kind of were, were waffling, I think is the best way. They're on both sides of the thing, like, should we do this, should we do that? Do we celebrate uh, Passover or do we celebrate Easter? You know, what, what is the deal here? And uh, so Paul, as a part of this process, sent or God sent Paul into the area on the south there, like we'd call it uh, the area along the coastline there, the southern coast of Pamphylia. And I left off a couple of little uh, Roman states off to the, about where the P is in Pamphylia. There was a, a, a place called Pisidia. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. P-S-I-D-I-A and Lystra were two little uh, small provinces off by the end of Pam to the west of Pamphylia. So Paul went along the coastline there. He didn't uh, go very far inland. And he found the first of those other Antiochs. It was called Pisidian Antioch. And there was Iconium. And Lystra, you remember, is the place where Paul was stoned. They were so excited about his message. They took him out and uh, stoned him and left him for dead, but God raised him back to life and uh, he went on to Derby, and then he reversed his route along the coast and went back to uh, Syrian Antioch. So that was his first missionary trip. And during that trip, God caused uh, many signs and wonders to be done by Paul to authenticate the gospel message that he was giving. And many Gentiles came to believe faith in Christ and, uh, but you still had this question, how do the Jews and the Gentiles relate in this new, new thing that's going on? And so the church at Syrian uh, Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem to discuss with the elders there and the apostles what was happening in this area that they were seeing with the Gentiles and to come to a conclusion about, about what faith in Christ really means relative to the historic Judaism. So they held a council there, the Jerusalem Council, we call it, discussed in Acts. And they came to the conclusion that 
the Old Testament law didn't apply, that it was superseded by the new covenant in Christ, and that uh, there was no obligation of uh, Gentile believers to follow any of the Old Testament laws, such as uh, circumcision or any of the other things which uh, some of the Pharisees were trying to insist that the uh, Gentile believers follow. So that was the message that Paul and Barnabas brought back to Syrian Antioch. And it motivated a second missionary journey. This journey was uh, uh, more significant in terms of the area covered. He uh, started off kind of in the same approach, went to Syria and Lystra. You may remember that in Lystra is where he picked up Timothy. And then he headed north. Be, it says in Acts that he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go into Asia and Bithynia. So he went into Galatia, and that's sort of where the Galatian church was founded, and headed up north towards the uh, Black Sea, kind of on the border of Bithynia and, and uh, Asia. And somehow he ended up at the, the uh, port city of Troas. And Paul thought, this is perfect. God's going to, it looks like there's an open door here. He says in one case, it was, he thought there was an open door, that there was a great chance to minister in Troas. But he just uh, he couldn't find Titus, and he didn't really feel comfortable with uh, that decision. And one night, God gave him a dream of a Macedonian saying, come over here and help us. And he took that as uh, God's instruction to him, and so he sailed from Troas to Macedonia. And that's where uh, he established a church in Philippi. And then uh, they were very uh, kind of uh, harsh to him. That's where he was thrown in prison with Silas. And, and there was an earthquake and he was recovered and they, the jailer and his family accepted Christ. And then he uh, left Philippi. He was asked to leave actually, he left Philippi and headed south he went to the town of Thessalonica they weren't necessarily uh, very friendly either so he went to uh, after sharing the gospel and playing a church there he went to uh, Berea and then on to Athens and many of you probably remember chapter 17 in Acts when he gives the sermon on Mars Hill a very instructive sermon if we're uh, thinking about how to present the gospel to people who, who uh, aren't familiar with the, the Old Testament or the Bible. From Mars Hill in Athens, he went to Corinth. That's where he met Priscilla and Aquila. He stayed in Corinth a year and a half. And from Corinth, he sailed with Priscilla and Aquila towards Turkey again. He dropped them off in Ephesus. That's where they encounter Apollos, who went back to Corinth to be their, uh, one of their elders. And then Paul eventually ended back in Syria and Antioch. So he again reported back to the church the things that he has done, just like our missionaries come back and report to us uh, of what's going, what is God is doing in the place where we have them serving. And sometime later, he started off on another missionary trip. This time, God led him in a different direction. He started off the same way along the coast, visiting the churches that he had founded to uh, encourage them and teach them more from the word. And, uh, but this time he went into Asia. He went specifically to the city of Ephesus. You can see that on the map. 
and he spent almost three, three years there. Probably the longest time that he spent in any one place. From Ephesus, which is on the coast, he again sailed across the sea, went to Macedonia again to visit those churches. Uh, went to Greece, what we call Greece. It was called Achaia at that time, so he could visit like Corinth and Athens, went back up. There was a plot to kill him because he intended to sail again backwards and they had discovered his travel plans, so there was a plot to kill him. So he decided instead of sailing, he would uh, go back through Macedonia so he could visit those churches. And he came to a place called Miletus, which I guess I don't, uh, oh, here it is, below Ephesus, town of Miletus. And he, he sent some people ahead of him to call the uh, Ephesian elders to meet him at Miletus. And that's, uh, uh, I think it is uh, Acts 20, where he talks his conversation with the Ephesian elders. <clears throat> and he was on his way to Jerusalem. And of course, we know in Jerusalem, he was uh, quickly imprisoned. And he spent about two years there while the... Uh, Roman rulers were seeking either to get a bribe from him or to uh, placate the, the Jewish people who wanted him dead. Paul appealed to Caesar and so he was sent to Rome and he was imprisoned there for a couple of years. It was in Rome that he actually wrote the letter to the Colossians along with the letter to the Ephesians, the Galatians, the Philippians, the letter of Philemon when he sent Onesimus back and First Timothy for instance. So. You can see Paul's history was, wasn't exactly a, a bed of roses. It was a difficult time. He was conflicted at times over what God's will for his life was in that particular situation. He uh, thought it was one thing and then he determined it was something else. But God led him the whole way and through this whole process he set up these churches and the gospel spread. We see that in the, on the map, you can see those red dots. Those are the seven churches of Revelation. So by the time, this is by the time John wrote Revelations, which is probably maybe 20 or 30 years after Paul was beheaded, there were these seven churches, which were major ongoing activities of uh, Christ in that area of Asia. And we, see, we read much about them in Revelations. And Colossae wasn't in there, but you can see there's three churches here, Hierapolis and Laodicea and Colossae. Those three churches were uh, very close together. Colossae, at, at the time Paul wrote, was actually the bigger church, bigger city. It was on a crossroads. And so I think, of, I think if you were back there at that time, if you didn't see the cars and various things, you'd think, well, I'm in Kent. You know, they had hills and trees and they were at a center of a crossroads like I-5 and I-90. They were close to Ephesus, so they had a port, sort of like the port of Tacoma. They were, uh, very, they were a wealthy city because they're right on the crossroads. There's a lot of transshipment of goods from one to another. And, uh, and they had good water. They said, uh, unfortunately, powers that be changed the, uh, the major road intersection to Laodicea in the future, so uh, after this time, so Colossae kind of declined and Laodicea became the, the major uh, commercial hub of that area. 
And uh, because of their wealth, materialism, of course, was a major feature. And there were also multiple uh, religions that were vying for people's influence. And uh, one of the religions was uh, emperor worship. It's where the emperor can make decrees and then people have to obey him, just as if he's God. You might see some familiarity to our situation today. The, uh, so this is a situation of Colossae. Paul understands their situation and he wants to instruct them a little in it. If you, if you flip back to Colossians a little bit, we'll just uh, run through some things in Colossians 1 verses 4 through 7. Just kind of summarizes uh, the church as Paul uh, starts in to explain to them the theological truths that are important to them once again. Verse 4, he says, for your faith in Christ. So the people of Colossae came to the church the same way everybody else comes. They came by faith in Christ. It wasn't because of their works. It wasn't because of their wealth. It was because of their faith in Christ. And that faith was proven, as he shows in the latter part of verse 4, it says that, that it was obvious because of the love they had for all the saints. So the people's hearts were changed. They were expressing their true faith in Christ by showing their love to one another in the church. And in 5, it talks about the direction that they were seeking in their mind. It says that they had a hope laid up in heaven. This is what their focus was on now. Their focus was on hope in heaven, not the commercial success of what was happening there or the whatever else was going on politically. And then he summarizes it a little later uh, in the latter part of 5 and 6. He says that they had the word of truth. That was the gospel, and it was bearing fruit and increasing. So they were seeing that God was working. He was changing hearts. He was bringing people to faith. They were having an impact, even if perhaps the society didn't appreciate exactly what that impact was. And we learn uh, later in Colossians that actually the church was started by one of their native sons, Epaphras. He was just one guy, just like you and I. He had been on probably on a commercial trip to Corinth and came under the teaching of Paul and heard the gospel. God led him to faith in Christ. He had a burden for the people that he came from in that area, and he went back, and he was evangelizing not, not only Colossa, but Laodicea and Hierapolis, these three towns, and churches were started in those towns, even though Paul never went there. It wasn't a professional minister that started these. Like Paul, it was a, a layman, like one of you guys, one of me, you know, or one of us doing this. So there's nothing new here. Christ is doing his work, he's changing lives through the gospel, and he's active in the world. That's what he's showing us. So let's emphasize a point here about this, though, is that Paul doesn't have any secret message or any spiritual techniques or any new recipe for rapid spiritual growth. The book of Colossians isn't a self-help manual for how to live your best life now. The truth Paul instructs them in is the same as the gospel they first heard, and he reminds them of that. There's nothing new that he's sharing. He's reminding of the truth of the gospel that they already have, that they heard through Epaphras. It's the same that he and the other apostles have been teaching 
since they're commissioned to Christ, the same as what was revealed to the apostles by God, and it's the same that we have today in Scripture. Rather than introducing some new methodology or a new spiritual technique, Paul is praying, teaching, and encouraging them to continue steadfastly in the faith and become mature believers. Spiritual growth is a result of a coordinated effort of mind and will in the same direction over time with a focus on Jesus Christ. So at this point in our study of Colossians, Paul is shifting gears somewhat to make practical application of these truths that we've learned in the first two chapters of the life of, to the life of a believer living in Christ. The passage today we, that we study today is sort of a bridge from the theological truth of the first chapter, two chapters to the specific applications of that truth to Christian living in the last two chapters. So I wanted to do right now is to read those four verses for us before we head into that. If then you have been raised with Christ, this is three verse one, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. But you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Let's pray a minute. Lord Jesus, thank you for the truth of your word, the same word that, that uh, Paul preached, it's the same word that Apophras shared with the Colossians, the same word that we have today, God. Your word is truth and light. We pray that that light and truth would be come alive in our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so when we look at, let's just start, first of all, we're looking at 3.1. Let's see. They have the first thing. The, first, the uh, next slide was, uh, I call it, how to con- it was conforming one's will. Three verses one and, chapter three, verses one and three. Verse three, verse one, chapter three, verse one says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. One of the first things we encounter when we look at this passage, I think, is what does it mean raised with Christ? What is he talking about there? And how did they come to have that uh, terminology anyhow? What does that come from? Well, I think general raised in this context implies a prior death. And so we need to look for that. And sure enough, in verse three, it says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. But what kind of death are we talking about here? Death is used in a lot of different ways in scripture. So we need to be clear about what we're talking about. It's not physical death, obviously. And it's not water baptism, although some have gone astray in that area. And it's not spiritual deadness of the natural man. For instance, saying that we are are dead in trespasses and sins, it's not that death. Nor does a reference to our corrupted flesh that wars against the new man, like Paul often talks about how uh, we have this battle going on between the flesh and the spirit. Rather, it's, it's a, it's, uh, 
Paul is speaking metaphorically of our salvation, where our sin is imputed to Christ in his crucifixion and the specific charges against us that sin, for the sins that we've committed are marked paid in full because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. As a result of this, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us and we are hidden in God. This means that we have refuge in Christ. We're protected from all our enemies by our sovereign Lord seated at the right hand of God. And he's emphasizing the fact that this savior that we have is also the sovereign Lord and King. No one can snatch us from his hand. God has created in us a new man that desires to please God now that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, that is able to call the holy God our Father, that seeks God's will to be done, not our own. So that's what Paul is talking about. Because of the nature of salvation we have in Christ, we are to seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Since we have the resident spirit of God, we are divinely enabled to do so. But in doing this, we also remember who Christ is. He's no longer appearing as the suffering servant of the Gospels, but is now recognized as a so sovereign Lord of all. In him, as we learned earlier in Colossians, in him dwells all the fullness of deity. His kingdom is not now, even though he's reigning, his kingdom is not now on this earth, but it will be in a day of his choosing. God instructs us first to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, a kingdom that we don't see right now. We are to live a life of prayer typified by the model prayer of Jesus in Matthew. Remember the things, how that prayer starts. Our Father, which art in heaven, holy is your name. He's emphasizing the fact that now we have moved from the case where, where God is sort of remote and the sovereign holy God of the universe, but we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We can call him our Father, and we still recognize his awesome holiness. And the next verse says, uh, Thy will be <clears throat> done on earth as it's done in heaven. We seek his will. The emphasis there is we seek his will and it goes on to ex express that in various ways in that model prayer. We seek his will, not our own. So Paul's encouragement here is, is uh, regardless of anything else that's happening in our life, conform our will to the things that are appropriate for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven ruled by Christ. The, but the key element to conforming our will also involves our mind. And so Paul continues in verse two of this uh, section, he says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. There is, of course, an intimate interaction between our will and our understanding. That is what we focus on in our mind. We lose our way 
when events and circumstances of this world block our focus on God and his kingdom. Such as, for example, when we see opposition, our opposition, we see our opposition as giants and God is remote and uninvolved in our time of need. Or we form our desires around achievements, possessions, acclaim, ease, and indulgences of this world. And it's very easy to do, and I can relate a personal failure in this aspect of life of a time when I was, uh, I sought a certain promotion in my work, and I lost sight of my true focus in Christ. In this instance, I was encouraged by a manner to pursue the promotion and was very flattered by that. It wouldn't change my job, but it would provide prestige and certain other advantages. And when I saw the application, I had my doubts about whether I should prepare for it or not because there's so much self-glorification and conflict of interest involved. But I talked myself into it. After all, I was asked by the company to do so. However, God had other things he wanted to teach me. So on the day of the oral review board meeting, everything went wrong that could possibly go wrong. Needless to say, I was turned down and then had the humiliation of having to write letters to all my supporters and say I had been rejected. Remember the parable of Jesus talking about the desirability of taking a lesser seat at a banquet and then being asked to move up in rank? as opposed to the opposite strategy of being asked to move down. So in this case, I was brought up short and taught the foolishness of seeking my own glory and not that of Christ. And I bring that forward just to illustrate that we all need grace. We need God's grace continually in our, in our lives. It's not just, it's not a you and versus me. It's not you versus a pastor. It's all of us are on the same place in terms of needing God's grace daily in our lives because we face these same challenges. We will have these same failures. Paul emphasizes this point in other ways in the other letters. For instance, in Ephesians, it says this uh, in chapter 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in your mind, in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Or Romans, a verse that many of you know, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that's the same truth that Paul is stressing for us to, here in Colossians, which leads us to our last point. Paul instructs us to let the glory of Christ on his throne in heaven swamp out all other attractions on earth. Rather, seek to live in Christ in all things. 
So I titled this section, Gaze at Christ. In the verse four of the third chapter says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily, that upholds all the world by his power, that creates everything, both visible and invisible, out of nothing, that exists eternally, that sits at the right hand of God in heaven, that Christ. Paul wants us to remember that we are raised by that Christ, kept by that Christ, sanctified day by day by that Christ, and ultimately glorified by that Christ. He will take away our corrupted body that is passing away with all the earth and give us a new incorruptible eternal body that will appear with him in glory. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and to be our advocate before the final judgment when the names of the redeemed in the book of life are read. So focus our gaze continually on Christ. I heard a statement once which I think applies. It says, gaze on Christ, glance at all else. Don't be focused in the rear view mirror of the past. Don't be distracted by the near-term enticements of the present world. Don't let yourself be defeated by present disappointments and heartaches and trials. The decision is really quite simple. To clarify this, let me paraphrase something I heard first from a pastor, Jose Moya, some years ago. The way he put it was like this. He said, there are two roads or ways from which we choose. There is the broad way that leads to death and the narrow way that leads to life. Life is only found in Christ. All other choices lead to death. Remember that Christ is not the means to our purpose as believers in the church. Christ is the means to God's purpose. Christ is all. He has first place in everything. Our church's highest purpose is to collaborate with God and exalt Christ. The purpose of the church is the supremacy of Christ. As the Gospel of John shows us, God did not give us a light. He gave us Christ, the light of the world. He did not give us bread. He gave us the bread of life, which is Christ. God did not tell us about a way. He gave us Christ, the way of God. God did not tell us some truth. He gave us Christ, who is the truth. God did not tell Martha to believe in the resurrection. He told her to believe in Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. Aside from Christ, God has nothing. Our wisdom, our sanctification, our salvation is Christ. He is the supreme purpose of God. Christ and Christ alone. It is not better programs, rallies, planning, or finances that we need as a church here at Easteridge or as individuals. It is Christ. We need a revelation of Christ in our hearts and minds and let his words dwell in us richly. Is this easy, you might ask? No. Paul knew that firsthand what was required of a follower of Christ in his forming us both from the standpoint of his revelation 
from God and also from his ongoing experience as a fellow believer. Again and again in his letter, he places himself on the same level as those he instruct, not in terms of authority, but in terms of fighting the fight of faith with joy day by day. Let me flip back to uh, 2 Corinthians 4. There's a very interesting uh, section here where he talks about this in a kind of a broad way. Personally, I didn't write down my, uh, my verse here that I was going to read. lost my place, so uh, <laughs> I won't read it, but he, in the passage that I was, uh, that I lost, he speaks about his history. He says he's, he's uh, crushed, but not forsaken. He's knocked down, but not destroyed. He's always caring about the body of death, but it's not death, because he's still focused on the glory of Christ. So Paul had this experience that many of us have. There are many here today that are in this battle in various ways. And this is Paul's encouragement for us, is not to focus on the battle, but focus our attention on Christ, to gaze on Christ, and let him uh, carry out his will in our lives, even as difficult as it may be. We are all one in the body of Christ, and we have unique roles to serve, for sure, but we all need the same command to refine our focus as given to the Colossians, to conform our will and seek first the things above where Christ is, to renew our thinking and set our minds on the things above, to fix our gaze on the end when Christ appears in glory and we are joined to him, and in all things now exalt Christ. As a, as an end, let me quote a little from a Christian song that was popular some, some years ago. Holy are you, Lord. As we bow before your throne, majesty and honor belongs to you alone. No longer will we give our hearts to the things of this world. For a debt of love we will offer to you, and we will join with angels around your throne, and we will sing, Holy is the Lord, holy is our Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the clarity of your word. 
Pray that your uh, truth, a supremacy of Christ, would find a home of rest in our hearts, God, that we'd see everything through Christ, that we'd focus on him, that we'd conform our will to to you, we'd transform our mind to your mind, that we'd see Christ in everything and we'd continue to gaze on him step by step as we walk through this life. In your name we pray, God, amen.